I'm Jody Butts. Welcome to the 2020 Network, presented by Interact. Earlier, I sat down with Gerald Butts in our home to discuss climate change. But before I let him go, we also discussed some of the many trends that have been accelerated by COVID-19 and that we've discussed on this podcast during the lockdown. This was a great opportunity to gain his unique perspective based on the significant public policy purchase he has held over the course of his career so far. As the Principal Secretary to the Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau from 2015 to 2019, where he was responsible for providing executive direction on the development, implementation, and communication of the government's agenda. As Policy Secretary and Principal Secretary to the Premier of the Province of Ontario, where he led the implementation of the government's $100 billion core agenda. And as CEO of WWF Canada. Gerald is currently a consultant with the Eurasia Group maintains a private practice advising on strategic investments in climate mitigation and resilience and artificial intelligence. And since July 31st, 1999, we have been married. This is our last uh, podcast in the COVID series uh, with uh, Canada 2020. And so I wanted to do just a little bit of a look back and get your take on some of the topics. That one, of, one, of my favorite, one of my favorite people I've worked with would call these short snappers. Yeah, they're short snappers. Okay, so here is your first short snapper. So you were the principal secretary to the Ontario Premier, as we've discussed, and healthcare obviously took up a big chunk of your desk in that role. Uh-huh. Some some like really unpleasant things have been brought to the fore about our healthcare system during the pandemic, and I've had the pleasure of discussing some of them, the challenges and the opportunities with, you know. Juan McKenzie and Samir Sinha and David Naylor and, and others. And what I wanted to ask you is you have this unique perch as someone who, you know, had responsibility for healthcare policy. What, what do you think will be the biggest change from a government policy point of view in healthcare? Do you think it'll be the domestication of healthcare strategic supplies? So kind of lessons learned from healthcare supply chains and PPE, reform of long-term care, Obviously, just terrible number of deaths occurring in long-term care, particularly in the provinces of Ontario and Quebec. Or do you think digital will finally have its day in healthcare, so pushing towards virtual care delivery? Well, I'm not sure how short those are. Um, first <laughs> of all, I would say that each of Quam, David, and Samir have forgotten more possibly today than about healthcare than I have ever known or ever will know. So I'm not gonna, certainly not going to put myself in uh, their company or league when it comes to knowledge or experience. I think um, I do have a, a relatively unique window on the way large-scale system change happens or fails to happen. Um, as you know, I was there through the uh, the um, postmortems on SARS and. Uh, an interesting, I think an interestingly analogous situation is just the amount of time and effort it took to implement the recommendations. I think there were something like 168 of them uh, from the Walkerton Commission, which itself was uh, uh, an analogous collapse of public health policy and uh, infrastructure in Ontario. My, my sense, and it's really just a gut sense, is I think the the most ripe, um, the ripest um, aspect of the system for reform is long-term care and elderly care. I think you know you have a, 
um, particular expertise in home care as well. I just think that um, uh, going back as far as the 2004 health accord negotiations, long, long-term care and home care has for too long been an afterthought in the core discussions of uh, healthcare reform in the country. And, you know, we are justifiably proud of our universal publicly funded healthcare system in Canada. The thing that you, that everybody should realize though, is that while the core of it is very, very strong, um, the periphery is really wobbly. So the things that we guarantee through the Canada Health Act and the settings in which we commonly deliver them um, are very strong and very reliable. But um, the new kinds of services that have become uh, that have become um, more prevalent since the the development of that system are very weak and precarious. And elderly care is at the top of that list. So I think a combination of uh, the awareness that's been shone on that system and all these tragedies that, um, yeah, it's just a horrible uh, uh, situation. I mean, you and I had this conversation about a month ago that unfortunately all of our, my two, my two parents and your two parents, our kids have no living grandparents. And for the, for the first time since the four of them died, I was thinking, we were thinking to ourselves that, you know, maybe not uh, for the first time. It was like maybe it's a good thing because it's truly terrifying. We have lots of friends who are um, trying to care for elderly parents at the same time as they raise their kids, and it is terrifying um, if your if your parent or grandparent is in a long term care facility through a period like this. So, I I think that. I think that the demographics will um, push toward reform, uh, but it's also going to be very expensive. And that's the core of why it hasn't happened, to be completely blunt and honest about it, that within healthcare, everything is expensive. Acute care is in particular expensive. Uh, chronic care is very expensive. And um, if you're the fourth or fifth most expensive thing uh, in a very uh, pricey neighborhood, you're going to get less attention than um, than you otherwise than you should in a, an environment of scarce resources. All that said, I I just I have a lot of faith in people, and I don't know how you could watch unfold what has unfolded, in particular in Ontario and Quebec, uh, and not demand um, a stronger system. Well, fingers crossed. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, you worked pretty hard during your time in the Canadian government to keep uh, free trade flowing across the U.S.-Canada border. And then we slammed the border door closed and it remains shut to all but essential traffic due to COVID. Um, does the border get reopened prior to uh, the presidential election? What goes into deciding whether it's reopened or not? You know, it's funny. I... I it's not really a joke, but I was joking with some former colleagues of mine that we we spent two and a half years working every day to keep the border open, and then they closed it in 24 hours uh, for a just purpose, of course. I think that, uh, and again, I'm only speaking for myself here, and I should make that clear, 
This is my own independent judgment that is not speaking on anyone else's behalf. Uh, I think it's going to be hard to reopen the American border. I think that um, the uh, the epidemiology in the United States has obviously, as at time of recording, taken a turn for the worse. Um, and I think that it's um, it gets harder and harder as Canadians perceive the situation to deter- be deteriorating um, in the United States. And as it, in fact, deteriorates, it gets harder and harder to open uh, that border. Um, at the same time, the economic consequences of keeping it closed are enormous. And the, you know, we have this, we've been having this discussion about reopening in Canada and there are lots of people who think we should be reopening faster and let's get the economy going, et cetera, et cetera. Um, while we're a country where more than half of our GDP is derived from trade with the United States. So I'm not sure what it actually means to get the economy going in an economy like that with a closed border. So I, you know, I'm, uh, I do not envy my former colleagues the position they're in. I think that they are uh, working their collective behinds off to make the right decisions in the right way for people. Um, But if you were to, I'm not a betting man and I don't predict the future, as you know. Um, But if you were to say, if you were to put a gun to my head and say, is the border open between now and the presidential election, I would give you less than 50% probability. Okay, so you're not a betting man, so I'm going to ask you to play something. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked a lot today uh, about how COVID is accelerating change in the energy sector, but setting that sector aside for the moment, which sector sees the most longer-term disruption due to COVID-19 in your view? Tourism, retail, higher ed, or the food industry? I think it's travel and tourism. I, I, as you know, I grew up in a place where right now in Nova Scotia, tourism is bigger than fishing, farming, and forestry combined as a segment of the economy. And tourism too often gets treated as a poor cousin in economic policy discussions. But what people are going through, again, lots of friends who work in the sector and in related industries who own B&Bs or who even are restaurants or who even have, uh, um, who depend on uh, Airbnb listings in Cape Breton. It's, this has been an extinction event, a level event uh, for the tourist tourism sector. Uh, the um, bookings are almost non-existent when you measure it as a delta from last year to this. And lots of Lots of uh, small businesses, lots of people are going to have a hard time economically weathering this. And I think the uh, the potential for long-term disruption when you look at the air, airline business, what a capital-intensive business that is to begin with, and how prone it is to vulnerable, how vulnerable it is to cyclical downturns. It's you have to believe that we commit. I have to believe is the wrong way to put it, but you would think that we come out of this with a much different, um, an airline industry that looks much different than the one we have now. And I'm not saying that in the Canadian context, I mean that globally. Uh, And 
I think I think the key thing to keep in mind, and even saw this with uh, Trump's rally uh, this last weekend in in Tulsa, um, but you saw it on a bigger scale with the the lockdowns, certainly across North America and Europe, that people stopped economic activity before they were told to. And they stopped because, for the good old-fashioned reason, you don't put yourself in places where you think you're not going to be safe. And you certainly don't put your kids in places where you don't think they're going to be safe, if you can avoid it at all. And uh, it's not clear to me that people have come to the conclusion that it's safe to engage in daily activity, be it employment or otherwise, uh, and, you know, I think we we're talking about, the, we've been talking about this almost every day through this lockdown. You think about the thing that I can't stop thinking about is, you know, here you and I are, uh, we have, uh, um, a strong employment situation. Um, we're paid relatively well. Uh, we can afford to simply stop doing the ancillary activities associated with our work, like going to uh, travel to meet clients in New York or London or Toronto or wherever. Uh, and we're told, you know, basically all signals, this is not one government or another, we're told that our civic duty in situations like this is to stay home, right? Yeah. And, and meanwhile, the people who go out to jobs that are not well paid, that are relatively high risk, that are extremely manual labor intensive, um, be they the people who work in uh, the agri-food sector or um, the logistics industry, all these people who are being paid a relatively small amount of money to make sure that people like you and me can stay home that's the thing that I think deserves a lot of reflection and um, will leave leave a lasting mark once uh, this is all over. Yeah, um, I absolutely agree with that, and it kind of it brings me to um, a somewhat related question. And just give me a second while <laughs> while I relate it back. So what what I wanted to ask you was, you know, we're not sure what you know the you know, September and the fall season holds in store for us in terms of the pandemic. And I wanted to talk to you about sort of do governments have the political capital to lock down again? But you, you're bringing up, you know, people who, you know, worked through the lockdown. I'm a bit challenged as to why masks haven't been mandated. Um, and I haven't actually heard an explanation that, you know, or, or I haven't heard words that that explain why we haven't mandated masks. And maybe there's a good reason. I, I'm not sure. Um, but it would seem that the science would point us in the direction of everyone wearing masks and that that it would make it safer for everyone if we did that. Is that is that a political capital problem or something else? Um, that's a good question. I'm not really sure. I think the the extent of my thinking on that issue is in the the population, the very small population that you and I control. 
um, we will be wearing masks when we go to environments where we can't stay six feet away, away from people. And uh, I'm not sure why it hasn't been. My instinct is usually when there's mixed messaging on stuff like this from different orders of government, it's a feature of Canadian federalism breaking out again. And maybe nature is healing and we're having federalism again. Um, I'm not sure the answer to the question, though. Uh, I suspect it's one of uh, diffuse authority. And I was struck today, did, just today, there was a public service announcement out of California. And as you know, I work with some people there um, where they had five former governments, uh, five former, former governors, and a couple of each party, telling people to wear masks. So it seems like a relatively straightforward thing, but I've certainly been around governments long enough to know that things that look relatively straightforward from the outside uh, are 99 times out of 100 not straightforward at all. Mm. Yeah, uh, and and I'm still prepared to kind of give the benefit of the doubt, but it is something that kind of every day I wake up wondering about and it kind of it, it nags at me a bit, particularly since, you know, we're just not sure what's going to happen in the fall. It would seem like a good time to try and straighten yeah. out. I mean, like like so many things we're in our political culture, we're infected by the United States. And the United States politics has never been more polarized, um, certainly not in our lifetimes than it is now. And it's even seemingly absurd things get um, filtered through that lens polarization. And absurdly, mask wearing has become now part of the culture war in the same way that climate change has in the United States. And it's crazy, of course, but um, uh, there are a lot of things about contemporary political culture in the United States that are less than uh, uh, normal. Um, I had a great conversation with Shelley Ambrose, and we covered a lot of ground <laughs> in, in our chat, uh, just like we are today. Um, but some of that ground included the state of journalism. Um, so I wanted to ask you, are journalism's challenges merely a revenue problem, or do you think there's something more profound happening? Jeez, that's a really good question. Um, it's important to start off by saying that uh, journalism, uh, not any individual outlet or another, but taken as a whole as a craft, is a vital democratic institution that Democracies don't exist, or they certainly don't prosper in the absence of a free press. And it's super important and therefore very troubling to look at what's happened with uh, journalism as a commercial activity uh, pretty much across the West since the advent of, or not the advent, since the consolidation of advertising on pretty much two platforms, on Google and Facebook. Now, there's a lot of justifiable criticism at the leaders uh, that's leveled at the, uh, the leaders of the industry, the commercial operators, uh, as opposed to the people who are the women and men in newsrooms across the country, uh, who frankly did not do an awesome, to, gets back to the, the difficulty of transitions, who did not do an awesome job of changing their institution so that they adapted to this new world. Um, that's a different set of questions. I think that I think that the, there are very few industries in the world uh, 
going through a more profound change due to technological advancement than journalism. I mean, there's there's uh, there's some irony in in this, but we're kind of back to where we were in the middle years from basically the 1830s, the invention of the telegraph, and uh, up until the mass newspaper era, where you're you're kind of seeing the only economic model that works is uh, extremely wealthy people uh, owning newspapers and uh, owning outlets and owning TV stations and global networks. And I think that that is a deeply and profoundly unhealthy development um, where uh, uh, you're putting enormous power in the hands of a very few number of people who already have enormous power. And I think if you think that they don't um, use their assets to enhance their own standing, then you're pretty naive about the way the world works. Okay, so my last question. I asked Ben Rhodes, is America broken or does it just have a bad president? And so I put the same question to you. Yeah. Well, I, I think, as you know, I am an optimist about the United States. I am not one of these Canadians who uh, looks down their noses at the United States. I think that uh, lots of people have gone broke over the past uh, 200 odd years betting against the American Republic. And I would not want, um, to be one of those people. All that said, I think that the United States is facing a reckoning, right? It's, there is no doubt that the original sin of, uh, um, racial, um, of white supremacy and enslaved people and the difficulty that American institutions have had in reconciling, on the one hand, a country whose founding principles are that all men are created equal and the fact that the people who wrote that document owned other human beings and it took them uh, 75 years and eventually a war that killed three quarters of a million people in um, a much smaller country than we have now in order to try to come to terms with that and expiate that um, original sin. I'm a recovering Catholic, as you know, so I always lurch for those metaphors. But um, And then immediately right afterward, uh, with the tragedy of Lincoln's assassination, uh, pretty much gave up most of the gains that um, all of those people fought for. And I think what we're seeing 50 years from now when somebody writes the history of what the hell happened between the Obama and Trump years and who knows what comes afterward, it will be a very old story. It will be the bubbling to the surface of the main contradiction in American uh um, institutions and its in its founding principles, and every American who's ever lived has, in some ways, wrestled with or um, 
benefited from was harmed by or tried to reconcile that basic contradiction. So I don't think that there's um, anything new that's wrong with the United States. Uh, and that, I guess, gives me a sense of uh, a source of hope and optimism for its future, that it has found extraordinary ways, sometimes very painful ways. You know, one of my favorite lines in any speech was, and maybe my favorite speech is, uh, political speech is Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural. I hope I don't butcher this line, but uh, I'll call it a paraphrase when he's describing the situation the country finds itself in four years into a war that nobody really wanted. And certainly the people who fought it didn't expect it to be that long and bloody. Um, he sort of, with equanimity, said that um, uh, that maybe it wasn't over, even though it appeared to be over. And the line he used was, until every drop of blood drawn by the bondsman's lash is paid for by another with the sword. You know, he had that sense of this wasn't about... Um, this was not a war over a minor thing. And I think that what the United States is going through in so many ways is the same fight on the same terms. And uh, there's lots of reason, at least at the time of this recording, to be hopeful that the better angels of Americans' nature are starting to uh, get the upper hand. Yeah, I hope, I really hope that's true. Is there is there anything in particular that gives you hope for the future about this moment? And not necessarily in the United States, but just, you know, generally, globally. Is there anything right now that in particular, um, you know, grounds grounds your optimism for the future? Yeah, there is. I mean, I, I, I in short, it's people. I think that I'm a radical optimist about people. I think that people want to have the better angels of their nature appealed to. Uh, they don't like to be duped and they don't like to be treated like fools. Uh, and they are susceptible to all kinds of fears and anxieties. Um, but at the you know, in the final uh, accounting, everybody would rather be happy than unhappy. You know, you've heard me tell this story before, but one of my, uh, one of my favorite people, someone I worked with at WWF, uh, was a great Hall of Fame hockey player, Scott Niedermeyer. And he, on top of being one of the most impressive hockey players in the history of hockey, he's an, a wonderful human being. And I remember him saying once to me when we were having a discussion about a similar topic, he said, you know, my experience with people is that if you're looking for a reason to be unhappy, you're going to find it. And I think that most people are not looking for a reason to be unhappy. I think that we've gone through a period... Uh, certainly the uh, right-wing nationalist movement that sort of Trump was both its, in some ways, its instigator and hopefully its, its crescendo, that there's, there's always some short-term political benefit in playing on people's fears and their uh, tendencies to blame others, usually others who they don't understand or don't look like them uh, for their own problems, but long-term nobody wants to live that way. And uh, I have a lot of faith that people will um, appear in the political 
uh, environment and democracies that will appeal to those uh, positive sentiments and people's genuine deep desires to improve their own lives and the lives of the people they care about. And you, you can't do that with negativity. You just can't do it. Um, so I think that I'm optimistic for the future because I think I'm optimistic about people. Gerald, thanks so much for sticking with me today and for the last 20 plus years. I'm really glad we had this chance uh, to take stock as to where we are at at this point in the pandemic in so many important areas of public policy. Thank you.